Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, that doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Alex Trubor with you. Welcome to Countrywide, this week coming to you from Mount Isa in outback Queensland. As we head into the warmer months, ice cream might be something that you could be eating more of. Would you ever consider eating an ice cream made from fruit that wouldn't be good enough for the supermarket shelf? So much stone fruit in this country goes to landfill because we have high expectations about what fruit should look like on the shelf. Each year, 7.6 million tonnes of food is wasted in Australia. And we'll hear from one company who's trying to do their bit to stop their fruit from going into the bin and turning it into something sweet. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. But first, let's head to Victoria now, where damage in the area around Echuca in the state's north is starting to become more apparent as the floodwaters slowly start to recede. Kate Burke is a former agronomist and agricultural researcher who lives in Moama. She took reporter Luke Radford on a tour of the affected area. Our landscape here is really diverse. So we've got sort of creek systems that run through irrigation areas. We've got flat, you know, border check irrigation areas and then we've got broad acre as well and so on our left for the moment we're driving alongside a, one of the larger irrigation channels and then on the right we've got broad acre wheat crops so it really goes from a um, you know, all the way from south of Elmore to north of um, Moama and it's heading up towards Daniloquin to the west it goes all the way over past Kerrang and to the east it um, goes east of Shepparton so it's just a mammoth event really. And in terms of the impacts on the actual I mean we, we've seen broadacre crops this morning that have been properly flattened and that's that's game over but really for a lot of these other crops it's going to be the long game that's going to be the interesting thing to keep an eye on isn't it? Yeah that's right it'll be, depend on how how long they sit in in water or whether the water can get away from from individual crops and every farm is different and I guess that's the message I'm really cautious about generalising because you only have to go a little bit further west into the Mallee and the Wimmera there's there's water over there too but there's still some terrific looking crops with great potential and even around here the, the potential of the crops that will survive and be harvested is probably double what they normally would be so for some individuals you know that the good stuff will override the bad stuff and then for some really unlucky individuals who just happen to be farming in the lower spots you know they'll, they'll have some huge financial impact so it, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all situation and in terms of the the financial impacts I mean it's it's hard to say what that looks like because as you mentioned it's so individual in so many ways but especially with with what we've seen this year with the the high impact of of these input costs that have just gone through the roof I mean again I hate to ask you to generalize but 
what kind of impact do you, are you expecting to see at least? Well, I guess the first impact on that is just the mental impact. I know they've spent 30 to 40% more than normal. They've been chasing a yield potential that's double normal. And now we've got this horrendous wait of four to six weeks to see what the outcome will be. And and that's going to be a, a really challenging time. That was Kate Burke from Think Agri, a former agricultural researcher and agronomist, speaking there with Luke Radford at the flood-affected areas of Echuca in Victoria's north. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. The Albanese government handed down its first federal budget this week. It's revealed plans to reintroduce water buybacks, abandon dam projects and prioritise town water supplies in a clear rebuff of the National Party priorities. Kath Sullivan has more. Australia's already committed $13 billion to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which in 2012 set out how water should be shared between farmers, communities and the environment. With less than two years to go until major water-saving deadlines must be met, last night's federal budget went deeper into the coffers, allocating an undisclosed sum of money to meet environmental water targets. The sum wasn't published due to commercial sensitivities and fears it could distort the water market. But the budget sets the way for taxpayer funds to be used to buy water entitlements from those farmers willing to sell their rights to access water across the basin. And it's happening in this financial year. We haven't seen water buybacks across the basin for almost a decade and Victoria, New South Wales, the Federal Coalition Opposition, the National Farmers Federation, the National Irrigators Council have all voiced significant opposition to using water buybacks to meet the 450 gigalitre water saving target that was promised to South Australia in return for its support of the original plan which was legislated in 2012. A little bit of context here, more than 2,100 gigalitres of water has been reallocated from farming to the environment since the Murray-Darling Basin Plan did start, but it's the 450 target which is in question in regards to this funding. It's unclear if any legislative changes could be required for the Commonwealth to re-enter the water market or if such a move requires the support of the states. But the funding allocation sets the scene for a real showdown when water ministers are expected to meet in February. Last night's budget also shows Labor will scrap Barnaby Joyce's $5.4 billion Hell's Gate Dam project and defer funding for several other water infrastructure initiatives. They include almost $900 million for the Amy Swamp Dam, Dungowan Dam Pipeline, Huendon Irrigation Scheme and Wyangala Dam wall raising. The National Water Grid was established under the former coalition government to research and water fund infrastructure across the country and so far it's typically funded pipelines, weirs and feasibility studies. But last night's budget shows the water grid's remit is expanding to now include town water projects. Well, what we've tried to do when it comes to uh, the water program uh, is to reprofile it in a sensible way. We won't be proceeding with Hell's Gate, but some of the other big projects have just been reprofiled. We've got a big investment in water. We've got a big investment in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, uh, but we've tried to come at it in a, in a more responsible way. And any idea on how much you would allocate to buybacks? 
Oh, that's principally a matter for Tanya Plibersek. I think she's pointed out quite effectively that we've had this plan for some time and only a couple of uh, gigalitres, I think, of water has been allocated. So we've got a lot of catching up to do uh, when it comes to the plan. Uh, Tanya's responsible for that and no doubt she'll have more to say about it. Treasurer Jim Chalmers. There's also roughly $60 million for biosecurity measures that have been brought forward in last night's budget, plus an extra 20 detected dogs to be set up at Australian borders and almost $50 million to bolster livestock traceability. It's likely this funding will go some way to mandating electronic ID tags for sheep and goats, which comes in on January 1, 2025. A million dollars a year for the next four years will see the establishment of a new office for the Inspector General for Animal Welfare. And while it won't help those dealing with floods at the moment, the budget also sets aside up to $1 billion over the next five years for a new disaster-ready fund. According to the government, this will help Australians prepare for physical, economic and psychological impacts of natural disasters. That's the ABC's Kath Sullivan there, breaking down the key points there from the federal government's budget handed down this week. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Each year in Australia, 7.6 million tonnes of food is wasted. Yet 70% of what is discarded is still good enough to eat. A family-owned fresh produce company that's been in operation for more than 70 years has teamed up with an ice cream manufacturer to help address the issue. Kelly Hollingworth reports. Boxes of rescue pops have started hitting the freezer aisle in supermarkets, but they aren't any ordinary product. The plum sorbet is made from imperfect fruit grown in Montague orchards in Victoria's Goulburn Valley and Swan Hill regions. The company's managing director is Scott Montague. Montague's got sustainability embedded in its culture. We've been nurturing our land here for over 70 years. So for us, Rescue Pops is just a small extension of our food uh, waste reduction processes and our sustainability plans overall. Between 20 and 30% of stone fruit grown in Australia ends up in landfill each year because of small cosmetic issues. So much stone fruit in this country goes to landfill because we have high expectations about what fruit should look like on the shelf. Despite the fact that they eat just as good as any other piece of fruit. So that's why so much fruit ends in landfill and that's why this was a terrific opportunity to to turn premium Montague plums into a great tasting product and help reduce food waste. The country head of Peter's Ice Cream, Emma-Jane Collins, says her company is aiming to have net zero carbon emissions by 2040 and this is just one step on the journey to be more sustainable. Dave McNamara, who's the Food Bank CEO of Victoria, uh, gave me a call one day to say that he'd had a conversation with Montague and the team there around the problem of the waste that goes around plums. And he thought it would be a good idea for our companies to come together and have a chat about um, the particular initiative that Montague had been working on. Uh, So we got together and we had a conversation. Montague had done a project around waste and what they could do to sort of rescue, repurpose the plums. Um, And that's where we came in and the, I guess, rest is history and we started working together from that point on. She says it's important for companies with similar sustainability values to work together. 
What's really important to us is to show our commitment to sustainability in any way we possibly can. And it may be a small step, the, the journey's going to be long, but this is just one, one initiative that we can work on with another business to show how committed we are. The packaging carries the slogan, too good to waste. And Emma-Jane Collins from Peters says a lot of thought also went into the name of the product. The name Rescue Pops really um, describes what the project is and I think in projects like this sometimes when you've got a lot to try and communicate to the consumer you can get a little bit caught up in, in a lot of different levels of information to get across so to me Rescue Pops just says it all. Even though they have imperfect beginnings Scott Montague hopes the icy poles will be well received by shoppers. Rescue Pops have a beautiful plum flavour, they're not too sweet and my kids adore them. That's Scott Montague, the Managing Director of Montague, ending that report by Kelly Hollingworth. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Have you ever tried buffalo milk? Or what about buffalo meat? Well, a pair of buffalo farmers on the mid-north coast of New South Wales say they've seen more and more demand for their products. Not only are the locals loving it, but high-end restaurants and some of Australia's most renowned chefs are as well. Keely Johnson has this story. Eleanor and Andre Swagen never planned to milk buffaloes. Eleanor is a qualified soil scientist and Andre an astrophysicist. But despite their impressive resumes, their passion for farming saw them pursue a career in the dairy industry. We always wanted to farm, um and we started moving further and further from Sydney, um, gradually um, deciding what and how we want to do. We were um, milking Jersey cows. We, um, we were also breeding horses. Our daughter was doing um, horse sports. About 13 years ago, their daughter, who was studying to be a vet at the time, introduced them to buffaloes after doing placement in the Northern Territory on a buffalo farm. As a, as a young vet, she was seeing a lot of things in the buffaloes that she thought were quite, um, quite beneficial for Australia because they're so, so hardy, mm. very tough animals, very resistant to diseases, still um, quite natural um, in, uh, in the way they are, like really not uh, susceptible to any of the problems that um, dairy cows have. And the milk is amazing, very, uh, very beautiful milk that you make mozzarella with. And mm. we, uh, we had a bit of a background uh, making cheeses at home um, and we always loved mozzarella. So we were not um, very hard to convince. The pair bought their first two buffaloes in 2009 and Eleanor quickly got stuck into cheese making. We made cheeses with our Jersey milk and um, as soon as we got our first two buffaloes we started making fresh cheeses, yogurt, uh, mozzarella from buffalo milk. Um, just by hand, just learning basically. I went to several uh, cheese making courses but buffalo milk was pretty much unknown and um, it didn't quite work um, with my buffalo milk that I brought to those cheese courses. So I was watching a lot of videos of mostly old Italian men mm. making mozzarella by hand in their basement, mm. having a cigarette, trying to understand what's going on and how this part of the process is 
connected to the other part of the mm. process. In 2014, Eleanor was awarded a Churchill Fellowship to pursue a research project on innovation and welfare in the water buffalo dairy industry. The fellowship trip took her to a number of destinations across Europe, including Italy, where she got the opportunity to learn the traditional craft of mozzarella making. Mozzarella is very intuitive. It's mm. not, um, you can't really learn uh, making mozzarella by reading books or even doing the courses. You just have to do it. And uh, I have become obsessed. They settled on a 40 hectare farm at Bungwall on the New South Wales mid north coast and now have 80 buffaloes. Eleanor has a cheese-making facility on the farm where she makes a range of cheeses as well as produces milk and meat. The local customers, the area is amazing, the community is amazing, they really appreciated it and, and we were very happy. And, uh, and, um, and the restaurants, like we, we've got a distributor, Feather and Bound, who, who just introduced us to the restaurants. The first one was Fred's, mm -hmm. Danielle Alvarez. She tasted the mozzarella and she, and she started... Uh, putting it on the menu and it had great success and then there was another restaurant and another, another one and that's how it all went. The business won a gold medal in this year's prestigious Delicious Produce Award which is judged by some of Australia's most renowned chefs. This medal is awarded not only for the best quality products, but also for innovation and sustainable farm practices. Eleanor says she doesn't use any chemicals in her products or on the farm. And unlike most dairies, who remove calves from their mothers a day or so after birth, she maintains the calves on their mothers for six to eight months. The innovative thing we're doing, we do not separate the calves from their mothers. <laughs> Uh, so we share the milk, basically we lose half the milk, but um, the buffaloes are treated more like partners in this situation. They're very happy, they, they're enjoying their life, they're enjoying coming to the dairy. No one is forced mm. to do anything um, and um, they produce better milk mm. like that because they stress very easily. They have this mechanism in their brain to stop the milk let down if they're not happy, if they're stressing, if they're just a little bit uncomfortable, mm. we would lose the milk. But they happily come here every morning and we have good relationship with mm. them. And, um, and, and that is the main uh, component in, um, in the milk and in the product that we make. Baraduck buffalo farmer Alina Swegen ending that report by Keely Johnson. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. According to farmers and industry experts, Australia's hemp industry is on the verge of booming after more than a decade of legislation curtailing its growth. According to a report by AgriFutures, Australia's production of hemp has grown from 100 hectares in 2013 to 2,300 hectares in 2021. The Australian Industrial Hemp Alliance says that figure will rise to 1 million hectares in the next decade. Hamish Cole has more. Well, we just stopped dairying and we were looking for some uh, enterprise that, that um, had some future and could offer, offer some agricultural opportunity into the future for the next generation. So I'm sixth generation farming in the valley and um, we, want to hope, we always hope that our, um, our grandkids have got a choice to be able to continue farming. That is Bob Doyle, a hemp farmer from Vasey in the Hunter Valley. Twelve years ago, he made the move to producing hemp due to the industry's potential. It had the opportunity of fibre, which is a good crop for us because we don't actually have any much in the way of grain cropping in the whole of the Hunter, but particularly 
as you come further to the east. Um, so growing a fibre crop was a good opportunity for us, we thought, and it just progressed from there. Hemp contains less than 0.3% THC, meaning it does not create the high traditionally associated with cannabis. You don't get too many people really worried about the fact that it was cannabis. Everyone, if you're going to grow it, people know there's a difference. Historically, we used to always say, you know, th- there were a few rules around how close to main roads and that you, par- you plant the crop. You can smell the crop kilometres away. So, you know... No amount of telling some people will have them believe that there's no THC in it. So the best thing they can do is come along, smoke a bit, work out it doesn't work, and that's the last year of a servant. The potential for hemp has long been spoken about, but a decision in 2017 to legalise the crop for food consumption has transformed the industry. Some fairly big changes. Fibre has been very slow. There hasn't been a market for the bast. Now, there's some really good projects happening at the moment to try and sort that out. The bar, the herd market is quite good, um, and it has grown quite steadily over the last 10 years. The thing that's really progressed the uh, industrial hemp industry is the grain industry, the food industry. So when food became approved to be eaten legally in, in Australia um, in 2017, that was a big change. That's when the big areas of grain started to go in. Food approval across the nation was a big game changer. And, um, but interestingly enough, the grain mainly got grown in Tasmania. They grow higher yields and they can grow their grain for a lower price. We don't actually have the suitable varieties in New South Wales. Um, that is changing, but we're a bit behind Tasmania. Dr Christine Storer is a senior lecturer in agribusiness at Charles Sturt University. She says the changes brought Australia into line with the rest of the world. There are a lot of regulations, a lot more than most other countries, and there's been a lot of concern around you know, the association between hemp and cannabis. And, of course, the hemp fibre is a low THC, which is the, the drug that you know, um, is illegal. So if you've got the right genetics in the plant there is no risk of that so I think the restrictions that we've had on licensing that have recently been removed and it's we're the last place in the world Australia New Zealand to legalize hemp okay so it's taken us a very long time to get there Um, I think we're kind of past most of that now a lot of people though kind of gee hemp is that mean you know it's it's illegal am I going to kind of feel odd wearing it or you know how's it working and I think we're sort of past a lot of that but now it's really much more about the public to understand that it's a really nice quality clothing garment a high performance garment to be wearing and there are no concerns with illegal activities you know people aren't going to go to the hemp field and you know get themselves you know high you know wandering around the paddock or something. Dr Storer believes the textile and clothing industry is the next big market for hemp to target. That's where I see there's a lot of opportunities for this industry to develop. Obviously the building materials is a lower value but certainly there's a larger volume and you can get into that more easily. It's much harder to get into the the fabrics but I see that's where there's the greatest opportunity because it just has these wonderful attributes that consumers are looking for, particularly with circular fabrics where I'm buying clothing more expensive but for a longer period of time and I'm not putting it into that huge amount of waste landfill that we're sending overseas and you know these countries have got polyester 
um, huge waste dumps that are going to take hundreds of years to decompose and they can't use the, the fabrics because they're poorly constructed and don't last. Whereas, you know, your hemp is a little like your wool. You know, it's a really long-lasting fibre. Dr Christine Storer from Charles Sturt University ending that report by Hamish Cole. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. From far-flung corners of the country, 10 female photographers have become the friends they didn't know they needed. The Beauty in the Bush Collective started on Instagram and within six months the group had established the newspaper publication Bush Journal, which has now been turned into a book called The Bush Life. Ellie Bradford has this report. Fed, you know, how many thousands of tonnes of sheep feed out by shovel. It just, I can't even bear to think about it. In a desperate drought, black little sheep farmer Lisa Alexander forced herself to pick up her camera. I really embraced photography in the drought because I needed, it was my coping mechanism. That even though we were in the midst of, you know, an incredibly hard drought, there is, we are still surrounded by beauty and it is everywhere. You just need People just, or I, well, I just learned to look for it. I taught myself how to look for the beauty because really there wasn't much else that was positive about what we were doing every day. And, you know, the, the death that we were seeing in the sheep that weren't surviving and it gave me something else to focus on other than just the horrendous situation that we were in. The group came together during the height of the pandemic when a lot of their work had been cancelled. Jessica Howard, who grew up on a property near Biloela, craved that connection with her rural roots after spending 10 years in the UK. It was basically just, we came together as an Instagram group to share our work. We initially set up an Instagram loop, which is, uh, you know, nudging our audience uh, to the next person in the group. And it was really just to showcase, you know, the beauty that we were finding in our day-to-day work. Within six months, we established paper, a newspaper called Bush Journal. We were capturing all of these amazing images and hearing all of these great stories and we thought they deserve a permanent home. And so the collective over the course of about two years now or 18 months um, has really become more than an Instagram group. Um, We produce this paper and now uh, the book, Bush Life. It's really just the most beautiful hardcover coffee table book, thick, lovely pages with all of the really, really stunning photography that you um, would find on an Instagram account. So a lot of my work is of my family on the property. A lot of the work of uh, the other women in the group are of their children and their farms and uh, their cattle and their sheep. Um, So it is a really kind of personal um, exploration, I think, of what it's like what life is like in rural Australia. And, you know, these are stories of worry about, you know, your family's future and, you know, what will your children do? Will there be a place in, in these industries for your children? And and I think that these are absolutely universal issues. While their love of photography brought them together, they found a community. Photography can be quite an isolating career. You know, you're often working by yourself and travelling long distances to get to jobs and you don't work in a company, so there are no colleagues to come home and come back to the office and bounce ideas around to. And that's been the really beautiful thing about the collective. We, you know, shared daily WhatsApp chats about our lives and not just photography, but about our lives. And, you know, we initially sort of started out as work colleagues, really, but we've all become really firm friends. And that's the best thing about it. Henrietta Attard from Homebush near Mackay says she's always been drawn to bush life and its very quiet beauty. 
the challenge of capturing beauty in that everyday kind of work life. So when you're a farmer, things are just constantly happening. You're always on the go. There's no time to set up for a photo shoot. There's no time to work around the weather or anything like that. You just have to take nature as it comes. And um, I guess that is a challenge, but when you're out in the bush, as beautiful as what this is, it's really not that hard, to be honest. You just have to keep your eyes open. And how, is there a line or how do you feel about sort of almost glamorising how hard it is? You know, all these photos are just stunning, but obviously knowing full well the, the reality of how tough life can be at times. For me, photography, it's not so much about glamorising, it's just recognising that there's beauty there. And I think I think we need to do that. I think that the hard times and the yucky bits, the downfalls, every failure that you have, every drought or failed crop, you remember those. You don't always remember the beautiful stuff. And so that's why photography is so important. That's why these images are so important. While their work is beautiful, the reality of their lives on the land is often tough. Jessica Howard wants the women's work to show rural Australians are some of the most environmentally conscious people living with the effects of climate change. A lot of the women in the group, just in the space of you know, the 18 months or two years that the collective has been around. They've been in quite horrible drought, um, you know, to, to having to deal with floods. And I think something that we all agree on is rural Australians are really on the precipice of climate change. And, um, you know, they're exposed to really the harsh, more, the more harsh effects of climate change. Rural Australians are some of the, the most environmentally conscious people that we know. You'll meet a farmer and he'll be able to tell you exactly what type of grass, you know, is in every single paddock of his 20,000 acres and what temperature they, the grass germinates in. And rural Australians are very conscious of the environment because it's their livelihood. That was Jessica Howard ending that report by Ellie Bradford. And that book, Bush Life, has launched this week. Check out those amazing photos on ABC Australia Instagram page or find the story online at abc.net.au forward slash rural. And that's all we have time for on this episode of Countrywide. Have a great week. For more rural news, you can head to abc.net.au forward slash rural. My name's Alex Trelaw. Catch you next time.